Hi, I'm Mark Roderick. Coming up on Front Row, the midterm elections kick into high gear. The latest on Medicaid expansion and parents of fentanyl victims rally in D.C. Next. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Roderman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, Morgan Jackson, Chief Political Strategist for Governor Roy Cooper, Democratic State Senator Jay Chaudhry, and Donna King with Carolina Journal. Mitch, why don't we begin with your take on the midterms? Well, of course, from a national perspective, the big decision is going to be who to vote for for Senate and U.S. House. And the ultimate decision will be who will decide or who will control those chambers in 2023 after the election. Right now, Democrats control both the Senate and the House. And the historical trend has been that the first midterm election for a new presidential administration it tends to be bad for the president's party, which would mean bad for the Democrats in this case. And earlier this year, there was a lot of talk about a big red wave and perhaps that uh, Republicans would get huge margins in the House and take over the Senate again. That has changed in recent weeks and months, not uh, only because of the Dobbs decision, but that's been one factor that has helped sway things a little bit more in the Democrats' direction. I think at this point, uh, a lot of the political observers still think Republicans will probably take over the U.S. House and have uh, probably not a huge majority, but at least some sort of working margin. And then there will be a lot of eyes on what happens with the There's Senate. There's a lot of toss-ups in the House, though, isn't A lot right? of toss-ups. And it could go either way. It's not guaranteed that Republicans will win. Uh, that There is a path for the Democrats to maintain a small margin. On the Senate side, that's where the real action is at this point right now. Of course, it's 50-50 with Democrats controlling it because they have the tie-breaking vote from Vice President Harris. Uh, and at this point, there are some true toss-up races. Uh, if the Republicans can can swing enough seats to, to get a majority, they, they will. But uh, we certainly are seeing some toss-up races in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania. There are also some races that you would think Republicans should win, but they have open seats like right here in North Carolina and in Ohio. We've also seen that the Wisconsin race has been very close. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see what will happen on this. I don't think anyone has a great prediction one way or the other. Some people are saying slight Republican advantage. Some are saying slight Democratic advantage. Anyone who tells you that they know exactly what's happening is lying. What are the top tier issues in your view in the midterms? Well, first of all, let's set the stage. Midterms are about motivation. Right. The, the, the party that wins the midterms is the party that's most motivated. And what we've seen in traditionally years is that intensity. <clears throat> intensity, but anger drives that motivation. It's not hope. It's not joy. It's anger. And as Mitch said, for much of the year, Republicans have had that advantage. And I think a lot of that had changed after the Dobbs decision that was very transformative on this election cycle. I think the, the number 50-50, as he talks about being the Senate, that's also the chances 50-50 of who wins the U.S. It's Senate. a jump ball. It is a jump ball. You've got very tight races. Um, 
for Republican incumbents in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, uh, for Democratic incumbents in... Well, that's uh, an open seat in Pennsylvania. Well, it is open seat, yeah. but it is a Republican-held right, seat. Is, right, I'm right. sorry what I meant. Uh, but you also have tight races in Arizona, Nevada. You've got a real jump ball here in North Carolina. And then we go to Georgia. And listen, guys, we could be in a place... You have to remember, Georgia has that interesting rule that unless a candidate gets 50%, it goes to a runoff. And there's a real chance we could be at a place like we were in 2020, where the U.S. Senate is decided by a Georgia runoff uh, in December. And so it, it'll be fascinating the way that plays out. But in North Carolina, this race is basically dead even. And as we head into the home stretch, the, all these races are going to be really close. Again, okay. who has most motivated will win. Donna, you're covering the Bud Beasley race. How do you see it? Well, I think that the biggest thing is when we're talking about the issues that are core to uh, to voters in the 60 percent in, in an NBC poll this week uh, said that the cost of living, inflation, that those are the number one issues as voters head to the polls. And Bud and Beasley, that's no exception. I think one of the interesting things about this is that Bud has leaned in heavily to his Trump endorsement, and he's um, you know found, found a base there that uh, Trump won North Carolina twice, uh, and he is trying to really capitalize on that, Friday being a big Save America rally out in Wilmington. Um, but Beasley, of course, following uh, national yeah. Democrats and, and focusing on the Dobbs decision. But will inflation drive it? And uh, Ted Budd, if so, then Ted Budd might have the edge. Jay, wrap this up in about 40 seconds, my friend. Well, look, I think uh, typically the party that holds the White House is the one that's penalized. I think this is a choice election, not a referendum that we're seeing, and that's because the Republicans are running towards Donald Trump and MAGA, as uh, Donna talked about. And the, you know, the, the voters have rejected the MAGA-type politics twice in a row. I mean, I what think, are the top-tier issues, in your view? Well, I th is I inflation think, a top-tier issue? Well, I think I think inflation is a top is a top-tier issue, but crime? I, I think abortion I think abortion um, is a is a real important issue, and I think it's rising up and competing with inflation. I mean, I think Morgan talked about motivating the base, and we're seeing that. I mean, Democrats have gained four to five points. Biden's approval ratings have increased, and I think the Republican coalition has frankly fallen apart. Okay, we got to move. I'm coming right back to you. Medicaid expansion got a lot of ink this week. It did. Uh, this past Tuesday, Republican Senate uh, leader Phil Berger reiterated his opposition um, to actually the North Carolina hospital proposal on certificate of need regulations and under the so-called CON laws, if hospitals want to add such services such as an operating room or more beds, they have to ask the state permission. Uh, the CON law supporters argue that such regulations prevent outside hospitals from setting up in the state and saturating the markets. They also believe that it keeps costs lower because you may um, you have duplicative services. Uh, those that oppose the CON laws, like our friends from the John Locke Foundation, believe that CUN prevents con competition and competition is good. They argue that it can bring the cost down. But regardless, uh, Senator Berger outright rejected the hospital compromise that would have uh, removed the state from approving uh, new psychiatric beds and some outpatient surgery um, operating rooms. He said they weren't even close. But to your point, Mark, uh, putting this in the broader perspective, because we don't have CON reform, this has been tied to Medicaid expansion, and as long as CON remains unresolved, we're likely not to have an expansion of Medicaid either. This is going to happen in December, though, after the election. You I think, think that's the best shot is in December. Listen, this is about economics at this point. Every month that North Carolina doesn't expand Medicaid, it costs, costs the state $500 million. That's what it costs us every single month. This, these are tax dollars, by the way, that we are, we've sent to the federal government that are going to other states. Expanding Medicaid, not only will it help ensure over a half a million people who are in the coverage gap right now, but it'll bring $8 billion a year to North Carolina. 
Roy Cooper, the governor, agree, wants Medicaid expansion. We've heard Republicans in the General Assembly are in agreement now to expand Medicaid. Uh, if you look at polls, voters of both parties well, overwhelmingly support. Are they actually support. talking or are they negotiating in the press at this point? You know, I think that's been the challenge with the Hospital Association offer is it was a negotiation through the press. That's not the way to get something done. Uh, I think, as, as Jay mentioned, right. where Berger and the Senate is on CON reform on, on what I think is much needed competition where we need, and especially in urban areas, when try to have surgery and figure out how long it takes these days if you live in uh, Raleigh or Charlotte. Um, but you've, you've got to find a deal, and they're too far apart right now. Not a way in here. Sure. So, you know, the deal that they offered, that the proposal that the hospitals, uh, healthcare association, the hospitals, um, offered to leadership in the General Assembly was, you know, they, it was presented like an olive branch, but I think Berger said it was more of a twig, uh, didn't quite meet what the requirements that they want. Uh, well, he basically called it a PR stunt, right? He did, he did, and I think a lot of that is because it came through the media. Um, one of the things that I think were, were really uh, the reason that con laws need to be revamped is because when you add almost a million people, 600, 700,000 people to Medicaid, and they can't get an appointment because there are so few resources available, so many, so few appointments available, that card is only as good as the paper it's on. Insurance means nothing if you can't get treatment. And that's what they're saying. And hospitals say, we're going to lose too much money if there's competition in the marketplace. But, you know, that's the way we operate. Mitch, 40 seconds left. Put this in context. Well, I say once again that the thing that amuses me as someone who works with an organization that has opposed Medicaid expansion is that it seems that the main item that's holding up Medicaid expansion is reform of certificate of need, which is something we've been pushing for since long before anyone even knew what a certificate of need was. I think uh, Morgan is right that if something's going to happen this year, it's going to happen in December, if it happens at all. Uh, it seems as if House Speaker Tim Moore thinks that there's a likelihood of something happening. Uh, Senator Phil Berger has signaled that perhaps uh, perhaps something could happen, but it might hold over to 2020. Okay, I want to talk about the fentanyl crisis, Donna. And some people are calling this America's second pandemic. Absolutely. Well, right now, uh, fentanyl poisoning is the leading cause of death among young people. Um, that happened recently, past car accidents, past, you know, a lot of what we think of. And parents, uh, a group, big group from North Carolina and parents from all over the country rallied in Washington, D.C. this week, went door to door in lawmakers' uh, offices in, in Capitol Hill and tried to make their point known. They carried obituaries with them. Um, they talked about what fentanyl poisoning is doing to this country. We've had 100,000 deaths. It's, it's, you know, doubling each year over the last several years. And it is, uh, it's creating uh, a crisis, an, an epidemic crisis that's killing America's young people. And in many cases, it's folks who don't even realize what they're taking. And it's because it's come, it's manufactured in China. The raw ingredients are manufactured in China. And it is being brought through the southern border and it's ending up on our streets and it's killing our kids. And there's a new one coming out too, and it's called uh, nitrazine. Uh, that's a new one that's supposed to be four times stronger than fentanyl. So this is really just beginning and it is becoming, somehow it's becoming politicized and it's killing America's teenagers and America's kids. That's a really good point because I don't see any bipartisanship. And I think, Mitch, that cartels really do have control of the border at this point. 
you could certainly make that argument. And one of the points of the people who are trying to raise the awareness of fentanyl is perhaps making sure that these drug cartels are treated as terrorist organizations. That's a, an item the that's on the table. The families want that, and so do the border uh, governors. The, the families have called for that. We know that uh, there has been an executive order in Texas from Governor Greg Abbott. They're treating the drug cartels as terrorist organizations. Also, there's a push to uh, declare this drug, fentanyl, to be a weapon of mass destruction, which I think would strike a lot of people as an odd idea. But if you look at just how many people it's killing, it becomes less odd of a concept. Morgan, only 34 percent of Americans think that Biden's doing a good job on, on the border. Is that a liability coming up in the midterms? Listen, I, I think the border's a challenge. There's no question the border's a challenge. The border's been a challenge for 20 years. And yeah, but, but there's only 480,000 uh, uh, folks crossing in 2020. There's 2 million now. And they're estimated that there's going to be 5 million people by the end of his term. That's the size of Los Angeles. Well, let's, let's look at it back on the drug overdose piece. Okay. And what I'll say is the Good Biden, well, it's, we got to talk about the topic here. So it's, uh, <laughs> uh, so the Biden administration has asked Congress for $42.5 billion for drug uh, enforcement efforts. That's, that's about a 10% increase of last year. Congress needs to act in a bipartisan way to do this. One thing we've seen the Biden administration do is make this a priority. They are seizing over 800 pounds of fentanyl a day at the border, which is the most we've seen. Some of that is because increased traffic, but some of that's because of increased enforcement. They've also made a huge push on remedies, whether it is to invest in reversal, overdose reversals, as well as fentanyl testing strips for folks. I mean, absolutely right. The danger of but fentanyl. But you have to secure the border, don't you, Jay? Is the border secure? Harris says, right? VP Harris says the border is secure. Well, look, I mean, let's be clear. The Biden administration has set out a series of proposals in trying to secure the border. One was the bipartisan infrastructure bill that, frankly, that included billions of dollars in border security that every Republican voted against. Secondly, the Biden administration has expelled over a million um, uh, immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants from the border in the first fiscal, in this past fiscal year, a million plus the year, the year before. So there are efforts to try to secure the, the border. But, you know, returning, returning back to the topic, uh, you know, there's the well, supply. Well, that has a lot to do it, with it people carrying this stuff across it, the border it, because it, they're strapped to their legs and their bodies. It, it does. And, and on the supply side, the Biden administration has committed over about $300 million to try to disrupt the drug trafficking side. But as Morgan talked about there's a there's a demand side too to look at harm reduction and they've taken several steps to try to reduce the demand side as well. We'll continue to follow this. I want to talk to Morgan about it. some good news potentially for North Carolina and that's our bid for the World University Games that the governor's involved in. Yeah, really cool thing this week is is so uh, the state has is officially entered a bid for the World University Games and for folks who are not aware what this is, this is an international competition where you that would bring over 7,000 student athletes from across the globe, like 150 countries, uh, to North Carolina if we were to be successful in this. Our competition is a city in South Korea, and it's really between North Carolina and South Korea. We feel good about our competition, our, 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 good about our bid. Uh, the Governor Cooper presented officially the bid this week to the national president. We'll know in November, correct? We'll know in November, and so we'll know in, in a short order. But it's a really cool thing because what it would do is highlight internationally all of our great sports venues and our incredible universities from Here in the triangle. Uh, not just from the triangle, but all the way to Greensboro. Right. So the okay. triangle and the triad. It's, it's, it's a great thing for North Carolina. Exposure is an incredible thing. 
It's going to have an economic impact of up to $350 million, which is, but again, it's, I think it's really great for student athletes. It's great for our universities and it's just great for North Carolina exposure to host an international event like this. Is, does, is uh, North Carolina Jay becoming a destination for big time events? It is. I mean, especially for sports. I mean, I think this plays to Governor Cooper's strength. I mean, he's a sports fanatic. He was a former high school athlete. Um, it, you know, I think uh, I think recruiting sporting events comes as naturally as trying to recruit companies coming here to North Carolina. I mean, he's built a real track record in this area. I mean, he's bought the uh, World Golf Hall of Fame back to Pinehurst. Uh, just announced this month that the NASCAR All-Star Race is coming to Wilkesboro. Right. I mean, I'm just waiting for ESPN to move here next. <laughs> Donna. I'd never even heard of it, actually, until I saw the press release. So it is exciting. Certainly, North Carolina loves the college sports. Um, uh, in 2027, is a ways off. Got a lot of a lot of ground between now and then, but it does give us something to look forward to. There's uh, money, $25 million or so, in the state budget. Do we that have was, the facilities to do this? Oh, certainly. I mean, I think we've made a big investment in, in our university system, and certainly we love college sports. Um, and, and Governor Cooper finally signed a budget this year, and in it was the $25 million, uh, for this event. Okay. Mitch? Yeah, I'm not going to uh, sour the punch bowl, but because I do think it is a good thing. But so it, you start uh, out that way, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but the the thing to keep in mind on things like this is be careful about the estimates of economic impact. They're the multiplier al- effects. They're, they're always overinflated to say yes, we should do this. Yes, we should make this investment. Yes, we should bring this thing in. The good news about this is that it's not like an Olympic Games where a city will go out and spend way too much money to bring in the Olympics and it ends up being an economic loser. I haven't heard that this is going to require a ton of investment. It's basically using facilities we have. So that's very good news. Do we have to put any money up front, Morgan? No, we've, we've put the money to upgrade facilities and things like that, but it's not just the university. Like the Durham Bulls Athletic Park will be a destination for a lot of these things. And so some of the professional uh, non-university locales in, in Durham and Greensboro will be used. So, no, I, I, listen, this is going to be it's, – it's all positive for North Carolina. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think it generally will be. This is not a case of saying let's spend a ton of money and then not get the returns we expect. You're going to be upgrading things that are going to be upgraded anyway, so it's probably good news. Okay, I'm coming right back to you. Let's go to the most underreported story of the week. We've already talked about the fact that the North Carolina State Supreme Court is going to be holding hearings on back-to-back days in early October on a couple of election-related items, voter ID and redistricting. Now there is a plea to hold another hearing either in October or November on this issue of felon voting. For folks who haven't been following it, because of a court of appeals ruling, felons who are outside of prison but are on probation, parole, or post-release supervision, they are eligible to vote in the general election. That could be about 56,000 people. But uh, the, the folks who are pushing for a final decision to say, yes, this, this does survive the court challenge, they want to hold a hearing because they think the legislators, uh, legislators' filings in this case have caused confusion and would prevent some of these felons from signing up. So we'll see if the state Supreme Court takes this up. Morgan. So underreported uh, this week, are candidate debates a thing of the past? Uh, in, the, in, in the last several cycles, or traditionally, we'll say, is that a major race, whether it's U.S. Senate, gubernatorial, uh, and obviously the presidential uh, debates, have three or four televised debates between the top candidates. 
This year you're seeing in most of the U.S. Senate races, maybe one, maybe two. A lot of them are doing none. In North Carolina, there's only one face-to-face -face candidate debate, and it's on a Friday night, which will, as we know, is not peak uh, viewer night for, uh, for, for folks. For front row. For ex because everybody will be watching front row. I'm just going to say. Because <laughs> everybody else is watching front row. But it is, it's a tough time for candidates uh, who are trying to get their message across. And it's, it, you know, in, in North Carolina, you folks have, Ted Budd didn't do a debate in the primary and is only doing one in the general. Like, Jerry Beasley didn't do one either. You know, it's anyway, are they a thing of the past? Jay. Um, Washington Post had an article this week about how Republicans in key battleground states, including many of the state uh, U.S. Senate races that we talked about, um, have said that they will refuse to accept the results um, from the election, the reluctance of Republican candidates to embrace a long principle standing in democracy that if you lose, you accept the winner's outcome shows that really Trump's assault on democracy is extended past the 2020 presidential well, race. Well, in 2016, Democrats... Uh Challenged the legitimacy of the elections too, didn't they? They they may have challenged the legitimacy, no, but I think they, they accepted the result. Well, I'm, I'm not sure Hillary Clinton did. I will say this: you know, Nixon and Kennedy was only a hundred thousand votes, and Nixon never challenged it. Mm -hmm. Donna. Uh, so if you went to a UNC school over the last decade or so, you may have been tracked by the university. As it turns out, a new report out, uh, it was actually broken by a UN, former UNC student that now works for Dallas uh, Morning News. They found that UNC schools, at least seven or eight of them, uh, signed up for a company uh, called Social Sentinel, and they were tracking students who in, were involved in protesting, were posting things about uh, drugs. Now, whether you think it's Big Brother or just trying to keep a lid on things, the students weren't notified that the university was tracking them in this way, particularly during the Silent Sam protests. And I think it's you know it's worth noting that you know parents and kids need to know that they their kids can be tracked by their school. Well that's a fine balance isn't it though Jay between security and and, and listening in on people or checking up on them. I mean it is but I mean I think you got to manage what the expectations of privacy are right for for students and I think some of the some of the um, the Has information that's reaction? come out of this is, is I think can can be problematic. Has there been a reaction from the universities? Uh, not at this point. I know that the, most of the information was gotten through public records requests, so I think that they've really not been talking about it. But it was certainly sought out by some of the chancellors and the, in, uh, and the universities to find a way to gel all the social media information of the students so that they can figure out who's protesting, who's using drugs, who's you know mentally uh, unstable or struggling. And, and so there are good things that may have come out of it, but notifying the, the students is an important piece of Great that. Great catch. Let's go to lightning round, Mitch. Who's up and who's down this week? My what's up is the price tag for this commuter rail project in the Triangle. Uh, the latest report in a presentation for Wake County commissioners was that it would cost $3 billion. Just a couple of years ago, they were talking about $2 billion. Generally, if these things do get built, they end up costing about twice as much as what they were projected. So the numbers will continue to go up. My down, unfortunately, the city of Greensboro, the ACC is moving its headquarters to Charlotte. So staying in North Carolina, which is good news, the state budget had some money making sure it didn't move to Florida. But uh, for Greensboro, I don't think it's going to be a huge negative economic impact, but it's a loss of a piece of history. The ACC started almost 70 years ago at the Sedgefield Inn in Greensboro. Morgan. So up this week, I'll say uh, the Cancer Hospital at UNC was renamed for former President Pro Tem, Senate President Pro Tem Mark Bassnight, who was the leading driver of a huge amount of investment to create a world-class cancer treatment center in North Carolina. It's a really, really fitting thing 
Uh, and it was a really nice ceremony where they honored, obviously, uh, Mark passed away a couple of years ago, but just a, a tremendous public servant and a very fitting, uh, very fitting. A powerhouse. Very, a very fitting tribute. Uh, and down this week, as I'll follow up on Jay's underreported, is, you know, Ted Budd was asked five different times this week if he would accept the result of the election. He, he wouldn't respond, wouldn't respond, wouldn't respond. Finally, he said, I don't know why I wouldn't. So not quite the resounding, yes, I will accept the so results. So it's public pressure in your view? Uh, public pressure, yes. I, I think voters want candidates who will say they'll accept the election. Jay? Um, who's up is uh, Duke professor and former Democratic treasurer nominee Ronnie Chatterjee is going to be responsible for implementing the CHIPS and Science historic $50 billion investment in the semiconductor industry that was announced by the White House today. Uh, given Wolf Speed's recent announcement okay. in Chatham County that uh, they're going to do chip manufacturing, it's, his announcement's a big deal for the state and for national security. And who's down? Uh, Wake County GOP party where Marjorie Taylor Greene will be the keynote speaker. Uh, Greene's track record of extremism has included selling t-shirts that say defund the FBI and suggesting that September 11th terrorist attack were fake. And so at the outset, I talked about the Republican coalition uh, not holding together. I think having Green as a keynote speaker is really problematic for the Wake County Safe Republicans. Safe to say you're not attending. Donna? <laughs> Actually, I'm going to shift a little bit. I'm going to say my up is uh, partisan messaging. I think that one thing that we've seen is an effort to divide the border and fentanyl poisoning as two different issues. They're inextricably linked. You can't divide them. And this effort to say, okay, we're not going to accept uh, the results of the election, because I think what that really signals is a fundamental mistrust in the American people about elections, and that's something we have to re we have to rebuild. There's there's mistrust in the judiciary. There's mistrust in elections, and this is a real crisis, regardless of which side of the aisle you sit on. What do you think? Uh, do you think people mistrust now the uh, folks that talk to them about COVID? I think so. I think some of that started mm -hmm. then, and you know there was everything has become politicized, and that okay. has been, trust is a real issue. Ron Horn, quickly, headline next week. U.S. Supreme Court decides whether to take up North Carolina state health plan case. Headline next Big week. Big news this weekend, Farm Aid and Willie Nelson return to Raleigh. Everybody should be there. You got backstage? I'll be there celebrate my 25th birthday tomorrow. <laughs> headline next week. Uh, triangle football teams, UNC, Duke, State, and Central continue to go undefeated. Fans no longer anxiously wait for basketball season. Donna, headline next week. Okay, well, well I think we're going to be talking maybe Leanne we might be talking about the railroad strike. Okay, great job, panel. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Roderman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Ewan through the Ewan Foundation committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Thank you.